is a pilot for American Airlines. And the way they work things, I understand, is, is when they figure out what flight they're going to be on, oftentimes they'll go online to uh, a certain site that's set up and they'll look for flights that are available that still have a pilot opening and they'll sign up for it that way online. And, and I, I recently heard a story of how he one day went online and signed up for a flight that was the next day. He found one that fit into his schedule well. He did his laundry. His wife ironed his shirts. He packed his bags. He put his luggage in the trunk of his car and he waited to fly to Los Angeles the next morning. That flight was American Airlines flight number 11 from Boston to Los Angeles. And the morning was September 11th, 2001. That flight, of course, never reached its intended destination. But Steve Scheibner wasn't on that flight. You see, just moments after he had signed up for it, another pilot named Tom McGinnis, who happened to be a more senior pilot, also went online. And he, because of his seniority, had the option to actually bump Steve Scheibner from that spot, even though he had signed up for it. And so it was that that morning it was Tom McGinnis who was sitting in that pilot's seat in Steve Scheibner's place. In the days that followed, I can only imagine the thoughts that, that must have rattled around inside of Steve Scheibner's mind as he considered the fact that there was a plane that he was supposed to have been on. He had literally packed his bags for that flight. And yet someone else had been in his place when that plane flew into the North Tower of the World Trade Center, killing all 87 people on board. I can only imagine the questions he must have asked. And in those days, some 10 years ago, no doubt you asked questions as well. I know I did. Perhaps you cried out to God or at least asked him in your heart and said, where, where were you when all of these terrible things happened? You could have prevented this if only you had cared to. Or Maybe you didn't doubt his motives, but instead wondered about his power and asked, were you not able to thwart the evil intent of these terrorists who did such a terrible thing? Ultimately, though, whatever questions you asked at their root sits another unspoken question that is really at the root of any question we ask of God. And that question is, what kind of God are you? And do you have anything to offer me in terms of my sorrow and my suffering? Perhaps you still ask these types of questions today. These are some of the questions that we're going to look at this morning in John 11, verses 32 to 37. In this passage, we read about people asking these very questions. It is my prayer that this morning, as we look at this passage, we will see not only these questions, but see also their answers, which God has given to us. 
Follow along as I read from John 11, verses 32 to 37. This is the inspired word of God. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please join me in a word of prayer. Our Lord and our God, we come before you trusting you, at times questioning you, seeking understanding, but most of all seeking your grace. May you give it to us today as we look at your word. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The 19th century American poet John Greenleaf Whittier famously wrote, Of all sad words of tongue and pen, the saddest are these, it might have been. We all know the truth of these words, the terrible pain of a pain that could have been averted. We have this attitude toward ourselves, don't we? When we do something that causes pain for others and we we regret having done it and it could have been avoided, what might have been had we not done such a thing? Or perhaps toward others, when they have done things to hurt us, we wish, what, what might have been if they had not done that? How that is such a terrible pain. And we even have this attitude toward God, do we not? Perhaps that was your heart's attitude 10 years ago today. And perhaps it is your attitude as we sit here this morning. Where were you, God, when that terrible thing happened? You would have been able to stop it. You would have been able to do something if only you had bothered. Well, this is akin to what's happening, I believe, here in verse 32. Mary and Martha knew what Jesus had done. They knew his power. They had seen his miracles and they knew he was able. And when Lazarus had become sick, they had sent word for him, but Jesus had tarried. He had not come immediately. He had not come to help. And we see that when he finally did come after Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days, that Mary fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. On one hand, there is certainly an affirmation of Jesus and his deity here. She says, I know you could have done something. I I know that you were able. She falls at his feet. But on the other hand, there's a questioning here, a questioning that is almost accusatory in nature. You say, I know you could have done something, Of course, the underlying truth is, but you didn't. But you didn't. Why not? It's the same thing Martha had said earlier. 
Both Martha and Mary affirm the sovereignty of God, and we with them affirm it. And if we're honest with ourselves, we also find that there are times that we question God's motives. Especially when the wounds are so fresh and the pain is so raw, we might even find ourselves questioning, God, do you even love me? Well, we know intellectually, of course, that God does love us. We, we know that there are reasons for the things he is doing. But in the midst of our pain, in the midst of tragedy, it, it's hard for us to, to make sense of all of these things, to process them all. And that's why oftentimes we will come to others in the midst of their suffering or they will come to us in the midst of ours. And as, as comforters or as helpers, they will offer explanations as to how God might be working in a certain situation. And, and oftentimes that's not really very helpful at all, is it? It's like Job's friends who came to him and tried to come up with explanations as to why he was facing the trials and the difficulties that he was facing. And just a quick word of pastoral advice to you all. If you are ever ministering to somebody who is in mourning, let, let me please urge you not to try to somehow explain away uh, the circumstances that have brought this about. Please don't rush headlong to, to quote Romans 8.28, which says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his, their purposes. That's not what a person in the midst of their, their most terrible pain needs to hear. It is very true. We don't doubt the truth of that passage. But what someone needs far more in the midst of their pain and in the midst of their suffering, far more than you quoting Romans 8.28, they need for you to live Romans 12.15 which says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Always let loving sympathy be our first reaction. Let us not be those who immediately try to offer up simplistic and often judgmental explanations. We, of course, saw that in the wake of 9-11. We saw it from kind of both sides of the aisle, didn't we, from conservatives and from liberals offering different ideas as to why God must be judging our nation or judging certain people groups or judging us as a whole. The only difference between the two different sides is which, which sins specifically they thought were the egregious sins that brought about God's judgment. And no doubt, like every nation, we certainly have enough sin to warrant God's right and true condemning judgment. And like every individual, each of us has enough sin in our lives to justify God's condemning judgment. But it is dangerous for us to start to, start to try to discern how God thinks about us based only on our circumstances. Jesus tells in Luke 13 of a time when a tower fell on 18 people, killing them. And he asks, do you think that these were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The idea is not that the people who experience this tragedy are somehow worse than everybody else, but rather we all stand 
rightly condemned by God. And the people who experience that deserve it no more or no less than anyone else. In John 9, Jesus and his disciples passed by a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned, nor that his parents did, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so it is, we see that in in the tragedies of 9-11, we need to see them not just as God's judgment against America for whatever sin you personally find more egregious than your own, but rather we need to see that God is somehow working in the midst of even these terrible circumstances, ultimately that his glory against all odds might somehow be proclaimed, might somehow be shown, even in the midst of these terrible things. And we must know that things such as 9-11 don't occur simply because God doesn't care. He's not asleep at the wheel. He is not callously indifferent. Rather, we see here in verse 33 that when Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved and greatly troubled, we read. This idea deeply moved in his spirit. The the New King James says he groaned in the spirit. The idea behind this this verb that's used here, it's used similarly to describe a, a war horse about to go off into war with its nostrils flaring as it's about to go into battle. It, it conveys a sense of, of, of anger, of indignation. And it causes us to ask, what is it that Jesus would be angry about? What would, what would leave him with this sense of indignation? Why, why would he have this reaction? Well, it cannot just be that he is angry that Lazarus is dead because he will, in just a few moments, raise Lazarus from the dead. He will bring him back to life. He will be restored to his family. But what Jesus is seeing as he looks around is he is seeing the effects of sin breaking into a good creation. He is seeing the the damage and the devastation that sin and evil has left in its wake. And he grieves. He's not just deeply troubled at sin's encroachment into his good created order. Also, we see here, in addition to his indignation, we see sympathy. We see sympathy in Jesus because... We see that he's been told where the body is. And and in verse 35, it's the shortest verse of the Bible. His response, Jesus wept. It's interesting to note that when it says Jesus wept here in verse 35, it's a different word in the original Greek than the weeping that is mentioned in verse 31 and verse 33. Quite literally, it could be translated, Jesus burst into tears. Now, I don't know about you. When I think of someone bursting into tears, Jesus is not the first person who comes to mind. I perhaps think of my children when they get injured, or you think of somebody else maybe who has experienced just the most horrific of pains. But perhaps we would be right to think of Jesus more in this way. For this is not the only occasion where we find 
tears streaming down the cheeks of our Lord and Savior. In Luke 19, when he drew near the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it. In Hebrews 5, 7, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and with tears. When you pray, are, are you so, so heartfelt, so burdened in your heart that you are moved to tears? Jesus was. Jesus was. We see that he truly was, as the prophet Isaiah says, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Calvin puts it this way. He says, by a strong feeling of grief and by tears, he shows that he is as much affected by our distresses as if he had endured them in his own person, which, of course, is what he would do at the cross. And we read in Hebrews 13 that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. And if that is the case, then we can safely assume that 10 years ago, when the Twin Towers fell, it was certainly at the sovereign hand of God. We cannot deny that. It was a part of his providential ruling over the universe, over all things. But at the same time, I think we can assume that as we wept, Jesus wept with us. And he still weeps at our pain today. In so doing, Calvin says, he proves himself to be our brother in order to assure us that we have a mediator who willingly pardons our infirmities and who is ready to assist those infirmities which he has experienced himself. Jesus wept. We read that when the Jews saw his tears, they rightly observed, look how much he loved him. But some said, in verse 37, but, but could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also kept this man from dying? You see, we seem to have the opposite problem of Mary and Martha here, whereas Mary and Martha believed that he had the power. They, they just didn't understand his motives. Here, here they understand that Jesus loved Lazarus, but they question could he not have done this? Did he not have the ability? Of course, Jesus did have the ability. And like we mentioned earlier, before our unison scripture reading, the reason that he tarried, the reason he waited was so that people might believe. And just the same as it was in the case of Lazarus, so we can assume that, that God somehow has his, purpose, his purposes mysteriously being worked out in all of our difficulties, in all of our tragedies, even in the midst of something like September 11th. Now, this might make us a little uncomfortable. It does for me, I know. To say that, that our good and wonderful and glorious God somehow, somehow is, is working and sovereign and providentially caring for us, even in, in the midst of 9-11, that it didn't catch him off guard, that he was, he was there, he was at his post that day. That's not something that snuck by him. But... As we've seen it put somewhere, there are three principles that, that are in Scripture, throughout Scripture, and that they have to be held together. We can't release any one of the three. One is the absolute sovereignty of God. Two is the absolute goodness of God. But at the same time, we need to 
hold on to the presence and the absolute evilness of evil. All three of these are realities. And it's hard for us in our minds to hold these three all together. But if we release one of them for the sake of the other two, then we are not worshiping the God of the Bible. The God who has revealed himself to us in the pages of scripture. We affirm the absolute evilness of evil. It can't be explained away. We can't just say that things aren't really that bad because the evil of sin is so bad that the Son of God humbly set aside his glory and he took on human flesh so that he might live a human life, that he might die a human death for us. Sin is evil, absolutely evil. We must affirm that evilness, but we also affirm the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. We hold all these together and we don't understand how all the time, but we can see an example of it if we look to the cross. One theologian put it this way. He said, the cross was the worst that human evil and rebellion against God could do. At a purely human level, it plumbed the depths of depravity. There were inflamed fanatics, corrupt religious leaders, lying witnesses, political conspiracy, vested interests, nationalist rage, morally bankrupt judicial process, excruciating torture, public shame, and taunting mockery. And even among the friends of Jesus... There were treachery, betrayal, denial, and cowardice. At a more profound level, we know that the powers of evil, satanic, allied with human, were ranged against Christ and hurled their worst at him. The cross was pure, unadulterated evil. But at the same time, we read from the words of Peter in Acts 2, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. See how Jesus, Peter holds these two together? He, he, he holds on to the evil of the crucifixion, but, but he says at the same time it is part of the perfect plan and foreknowledge of God. And so we cannot set aside any of these We need to see that they all work together. And beyond that, we can see that in the cross, no one has suffered as much as God has at the hands of evil. No one has received the the full force of evil like Jesus. And so even when we can't completely understand how he could possibly be a good and sovereign God and at the same time be at work in and through evil, we can trust him. We can trust him because he has endured not only the same pain that we endure, but he has endured it on our behalf. So towers may tumble, loved ones may suffer, and we might end up weeping in the proverbial ashes, asking God, where were you? Do you love me? Are you able? What kind of God are you? when we ask these questions, he does not give us cliched answers. Instead, he joins us in our tears and he bids us to look away from our circumstances and look instead to the cross. For it is there, not in our circumstances, that we find the greatest statement about his 
love for us. As I understand it, in martial arts such as judo and karate, what, what is done to affect uh, self-defense is, is that if somebody, your assailant, tries to attack you, you, you absorb the force of their attack and then turn it against them. And this is what Jesus did at the cross. This is what he did at the cross. He, he received the full impact of evil at the cross and turned it against itself. He received the impact of death and turned it against itself so that death itself might die. And if Jesus could work in this way at the cross, just as he turned the power of evil against itself there, we can trust that he too, in his timing, does the same at the Twin Towers. He does the same at the Pentagon. He does the same in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And he does the same in our life here today. And we know that this is true because Jesus wept and he bled and he died. Now God's plan does not always follow our timetable. Think of Lazarus. Jesus waited for two days before he came. When he got there, Lazarus was already in the tomb for four days. That's not the way we would have written it. We would have had him come quicker. Likewise, in Jesus' own death and resurrection, he died. It wasn't until the third day that he rose. Why, why the waiting? Our timetable is not the same as his. Even when he rose, he appeared to his disciples. Thomas wasn't there. Thomas said, I, I won't believe it until I see him with my own eyes, until I, till I touch him with my own hands. And Jesus graciously came to Thomas and appeared to him but not for another week. Why the waiting? Why the waiting? Our timetable is not the same as God's. And even now, we wait for his kingdom to be consummated. We, we pray with the choir who sang before, Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. Haste that day. Hurry it along. Let it be even today. And we wonder why he tarries. But at the same time, I realize that had Christ not tarried, I would not have been saved. And had Christ not tarried, you would not have been saved. And there are those in our midst, I assume, who have not been saved, who have not placed their trust in Christ Jesus yet. And Christ tarries. And so you who are here, who have not trusted in Christ Jesus, who will someday trust in Christ Jesus, can rejoice with us that he has tarried. But let me be clear, he will not tarry forever. If you talk to him today, Steve Scheibner will tell you that there have been two times when his life has been saved. Both times his life was saved because somebody else died in his place. One, of course, was Tom McGinnis, who sat in his chair in the cockpit of that airplane. The other, of course, was the perfectly innocent Son of God, who hung on a cross, paying the penalty for Steve Scheibner's sins.
and for mine and for yours. And had we been there on that terrible day when he hung on that cross, when he was brutally tortured and crucified, no doubt as we sat there at the foot of the cross, we would have cried out to God, God, where are you in this? How, how can this possibly be happening? This makes no sense to us. This is pure, unadulterated evil going on here. How can you be working here? Where are you? But on that day, God was right where he always is. God was on his throne, sovereignly governing the universe. And that's right where he was 10 years ago today. On 9-11, he was on his throne, sovereignly governing the universe. And that is where he is today and where he will forever be. You see, the question is not really, where is God? But rather, where are we in relationship to him? Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth, even though it is difficult at times, even though it is hard to understand, and even more so when we do understand it, it's sometimes harder to accept. But we thank you that you have given to us. We pray that you would mold us into Christ-likeness by the power that is present in your word. And we ask this in Jesus' wonderful name.